Well, we've been working our way through uh, Luke's Gospel on Sunday mornings. For those of you who are regulars, we're going to keep going basically to the end uh, of chapter 13, and that will be around about the end of August, and then we'll have a break from Luke for a while. Uh, but we're going to read now from uh, Luke chapter 12, and verses 49 <coughs> to the end of the chapter. Jesus has been saying some pretty hard things over the last few verses. He hasn't been mincing his words. Uh, And again, he's not going to here. Uh, It's a very straight-talking passage. So we'll read from, as I said, verse 49 to the end of the chapter. Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a a baptism to be baptised with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against mother, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, You will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Amen. Some of you here are holiday makers this morning, I'm sure. Uh, And I wonder uh, what your impressions of Yorkshire are. When Yorkshire is mentioned and Yorkshire people, uh, what springs to mind about Yorkshire people? Um, I I don't know whether to mention many of them because often they're not very complimentary. Um, But one of them that perhaps springs to mind is that Yorkshire people tend to call a spade a spade. Uh, They tend to be pretty straightforward and say things as they see them uh, and as they are, straight talking. Uh, Well, in Luke's Gospel, in the last little passages that we've been looking at, and again this morning, uh, Jesus has been engaging in some very straight talking. He's been calling a spade a spade, if you like. Uh, he hasn't minced his words. He's been straight talking about sin, uh, straight talking about judgment, uh, straight talking about hell. Uh, and in these last few verses of chapter 12, uh, Jesus shows us that he still has more straight talking to do. Uh, he's going to get, as we might say, very real with his hearers in verses 49 uh, to 53, first of all, that we'll think about this morning mostly, and then we'll look at the other verses at the end. In, in these verses, he's going to give them some truths, and he's going to give them straight. Now, three things in these verses he's, he's going to be straight about. 
He's going to be straight, first of all, about his attitude uh, to evil uh, and to sin. Then he's going to be straight about his forthcoming death on the cross. And then he's going to be straight about one of the costs of following him. So let's look at each of these in turn then uh, and see what what Jesus is telling us. And and he's telling us these things because he wants to be honest with us and because he loves us. Uh, It's important uh, that we know these things that he's going to tell us. So first of all, let's start with uh, verse 49. Uh, Jesus gets straight about his attitude to sin uh, and to evil. Uh, One of the most appealing things about Jesus Uh, as you look at his life, as you read the Gospels, uh, is to see uh, his attitude actually towards people who uh, were the worst of sinners. Uh, He had an attitude that showed he was was willing to mix with these people. He was quite willing and happy to go to them, uh, to people whose lives uh, were often a mess, uh, and who did things that were, were horrible, things that were wrong. Uh, people who uh, were not good, he would go to them. Now, no one's entirely good, of course they aren't. Not even close. Uh, but Jesus often seemed to pick out and seek out, didn't he, uh, the dregs. Uh, the people who seemed to be the worst of the lot. And he loved them and he had compassion upon them. Uh, that was Jesus. That is Jesus. But even though that is true of him, uh, we should never think for a moment uh, that that means that sin didn't actually bother him that much. Or that sin didn't trouble him. Uh, That evil wasn't a problem. That wrongdoing could be overlooked. Uh, That being bad wasn't a big deal. Now what we find of course of Jesus. Is that he hates. And that's not too strong a word. He hates any sin. Any evil. Any wrongdoing. Any crime. Any rebellion against or rejection of God, Jesus hates it. He hates it with a a burning passion. When he sees sin, then he hates it with a deep, burning and holy hatred. And he longs to see it dealt with. As he puts it in this verse, consumed by fire. Now we we can quickly forget this at times. Or or not be keen to say it. (laughs) We can forget the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteous and yes fierce anger with sin. Uh, It's important to see from this verse that the fact that he will deal with with sin. With your sin, with, with my sin. It's not in the kind of way that it's, well, if it must be punished, then I suppose it better had be. Rather, he he does want to deal with it. It's clear from this verse that he looks forward to being able to deal with sin and be rid of it. Uh, We forget that, we downplay it. But Jesus doesn't in verse 49. Look what he says. I came to cast fire on the earth. That's judgment upon sin. And would that that fire 
were already kindled. Do those words shock you a little bit? Uh, they shocked me a little bit when I came to them this week. I have read them before, but when you, you take time and allow the force of them to hit you, it is quite shocking. He would get on with it now, he's saying, in many ways. Uh, Jesus here uh, is getting very real about his attitude towards sin uh, and evil. Uh, here's his attitude. He desperately wants to wipe it out with fire. Now, I don't know what your response to that is, but can I suggest to you that actually it's a good thing that that is Jesus' attitude to sin uh, and to evil. Uh, do you ever look at, at the world around you? Take a wider look at the world as you see it. Uh, watch the news headlines any day of the week, pretty much. And you should think to yourself, there is so much that is wrong. There is so much that is sinful. Uh, there is so much that is evil. I wish that slate could be wiped clean. Do you never think that when you look at the world around you? I wish that evil could just be gone, flushed out, dealt with once and for all. Well, that is Jesus. That is Jesus. He doesn't look at our world, this world, and come to the conclusion that the evil in it doesn't matter. That it's something towards he can just turn a, a blind eye. Not at all. He wants to sort it out. He wants to deal with it. He wants to extinguish sin and evil. One day he will. But as Jesus said these words in verse 49, he knew that it was not yet the time for him to burn up evil on the earth. That time had not yet come. There was something else he had to do first. Something else first. Uh, in verse 50 we find out what it is. And he refers to it there as a baptism. A baptism. Uh, what springs to mind with the word baptism? What springs to mind with most of us probably uh, is uh, water. Water baptism. Uh, but we do have another phrase associated with baptism, don't we? Uh, sometimes we use it, our baptism of fire. You've never used that phrase or heard that phrase. Sometimes it's used in sporting uh, situations where you have someone maybe in Wimbledon first round for the first time, he's up against Roger Federer, and it proves to be a bit of a baptism of fire as he goes down in straight sets. Uh, I remember my first day uh, in a, a job I did before I, I trained for the ministry. Um, I got a job working for Job Centre Plus, uh, and my first day I went into the office. Uh, and I didn't know, I had no idea before I turned up, but I went in and found out that it was actually a strike day. Uh, and most of the staff were off, they were striking. Uh, there was a skeleton staff, uh, and normally I'd been told before I started the job I would get a good training before I actually had to do anything much in terms of dealing with the public. Well, on this day, no chance. Uh, pick up the phones, answer the phones, say, welcome, uh, hello, Job Centre Plus, how can I help you? Uh, only to be told, I need my incapacity benefits sorting out. I didn't have much idea what incapacity benefit was. It was a baptism of fire. Now, baptisms of fire are difficult experiences. Uh, they're not uh, joyful ones. They're hard. They're painful. Well, the baptism that Jesus is referring to in verse 50, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. 
He isn't talking about water baptism here. He's talking about something more painful and horrific than we can possibly imagine. Uh, and this is our second point from these verses. Uh, Jesus gets straight about his forthcoming death on the cross. Uh, you see, what Jesus is referring to in verse 50 is the death that lies ahead of him at Calvary on that cross. And as, by this point in Luke's Gospel, uh, as we've worked through it, uh, the prospect of what is awaiting him on the cross is all too real. It, it weighs heavy upon him now. Uh, a few chapters earlier we read that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, set his face for what was coming at Calvary. He's painfully aware of what lies ahead. He's going to be deserted by everyone. Deserted by his family. Uh, deserted by his closest friends. He's going to be wrongfully charged with crimes that he has not committed. Terrible crime, blasphemy with a death penalty he will be accused of even though he hasn't done it. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be jeered. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten with, with lashes, with bits of nail and metal embedded in them so that they shred his back to pieces. He's going to have a crown of thorns dug down into his scalp. He's going to be made to carry a shameful cross through the streets of Jerusalem that will be so heavy he just won't be able to bear the weight he'll be crushed under it and someone will have to help him. He's going to have nails rammed through his hands and through his feet, the most sensitive parts of your body, to have them rammed through, they will go through his hands and his feet. He's going to be hoisted up onto a cross where he will die suffocating under his own body weight as he hangs there. Then, as all that is happening, he will be mocked by more by people who should have known better. And then he will physically die. His body will, will give up on him. He'll die. How great is my distress? Well, it's no wonder, is it? I think if that was me, that would be an understatement. How great is my distress as I look forward to that? As if Jesus looks forward then to, to the cross in verse 50, he's very straight, isn't he? He's very honest about how it makes him feel. It's distressing. But what I just described, that physical suffering of the crucifixion, it wasn't even the thing that would have caused him the most distress. Uh, the most distressing thing for Jesus was that he knew that while he was on that cross what would he be facing what would he be suffering the full wrath of the father's anger with sin with the sin of everybody who would one day trust in him and that it would look forward to him uh, nothing could be more distressing than that suffering the exact equivalent of the eternal fires of hell but not just for one person but for a whole multitude of people concentrated into just a few hours can you imagine that? Uh, I was watching the other day uh, a video on the internet um, it was a, a video that had been taken of a, a Christian pastor who had gone into a, a college actually in the United States uh, to basically try and speak uh, apologetically so presenting the gospel to a group of students 
Uh, now these students were incredibly antagonistic towards the Christian faith. Uh, and one of them had an objection, particularly about Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, he approached uh, the microphone and he got to ask his question from in the, the way you might stereotypically expect a student kind of walled up to the, to the microphone and then said, I've got, I'm going to catch you out here. He said something like this. Come on, Matt, surely just a few hours on a cross is isn't that bad. I know it's not a pleasant way to die, but come on, compared with eternity in hell, it's not much, is it? Not much at all. In some ways, maybe you can see his point. How do you compare an eternity in hell with just a few hours on a cross? As bad as that might be. And Jesus' death on the cross had simply been what I described initially, all those physical things. The beating, the nails, the suffocation under his own weight. And I think that student would have had a fair point. I really do. I think he'd have had a fair point to say, come on, I know it's pretty bad dying on a cross, but it's not as bad as an eternity in hell, is it? It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be, not even close. But you see that the visible, outward, physical suffering that he went through there on the cross, it was just a faint image. A faint image of the internal horror of facing the anger of God with sin. What that student hadn't understood is that Jesus was bearing sin on the cross and the penalty for it. It wasn't just another criminal dying on a Roman cross like the too many either side of him. There was a whole lot more to it than that. Uh, no picture that we can imagine, you see, can do justice to what Jesus really went through on the cross. And it wasn't the thought of, of crucifixion per se that filled him with great distress here in verse 50. It was bearing the heavy load of sin, wasn't it? And all the consequences of being made sin for us. Uh, this distress that Jesus felt about suffering on the cross, it remains hidden throughout most of the gospel accounts. It doesn't come to the surface very often, does it? Only occasionally do we see it. This verse is one example, probably the best example, and most vivid though, is the Garden of Gethsemane uh, that we sang about earlier. Uh, the night before his death, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's pleading on three occasions, pleading with his father, saying, Father, if there is any other way, any other way for human sin and evil, the sins of my people, other than by me paying for it on the cross, if there's any other way for it to be dealt with, Father, let's do it that way. But even as he prayed, he knew there was no other way. He knew that. So he adds to his prayer, doesn't he, amazingly, but not my will be done, but yours. I'll do it. He's distressed about it. But for his people's sake, for your sake, if you'll come to him, he'll go through it. He'll go ahead with it. I think it's no coincidence here that, that Jesus talks about his desire to bring the fires of judgment on the earth and then immediately his own death on the cross in quick succession. Now these two things right next to each other. You see, reading verse 49 in isolation, uh, you could come away with a conclusion, something like this, that yes, Jesus hated sin, yes, he loved justice, 
But he seems to have little compassion here or patience for people like us who are held captive by sin. If you read it in isolation, you might think that all he wanted to do was wipe us off the face of the earth. But Jesus does not want us to think that all he is interested in is being a consuming fire who burns up sinners like you and me. No, he wants us to know that as much as he hates sin, as much as he hates evil and will come in fiery judgment upon it one day, he will also, before he does that, lovingly and sacrificially at great expense to himself, provide us with a way out. Provide us with a way out of the judgment by doing what? By stepping straight into the fire himself. A baptism of fire, if you like, on the cross. You see, only the Lord Jesus Christ truly knew just how awful the suffering of the cross would be. Why? Because only he knew just how righteously angry the Father is with sin. He possessed that anger himself in actual fact. And yet, he willingly stepped straight into the awesomely intense suffering of the cross. Why? So that you don't have to go to hell and suffer the fires of hell and judgment yourself. That is incredible. That is incredible that he should do that, knowing full well what it would be like. Now the, the gospel of course is more than just a avoiding hell. It, it's life as we thought about in the children's talk. It's heaven. It's the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not less than avoiding hell. Uh, it's incredible what Christ did here. Christ goes to the cross to make peace with God possible for you. So then have you made your peace with God yet? Have you made your peace with him? Uh, have you trusted in Jesus Christ to, to take your hell for you there on the cross? Because you can do. You can and you must. Uh, the invitation from Jesus is always there. He stands ready to forgive you, to grant you peace with God. And we read from, or Dan read from, sorry, 2 Peter 3 earlier. Uh, I got him to read that because it does talk about judgment. Uh, and the fact that one day it will come, but it speaks of God's patience. He's, he's allowing time. He's allowing time for people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, to trust in Him. The fact that we're here today shows His patience. The fact that He's still alive shows His patience. Come to Him while there's still time. So, so far then we've seen uh, two pieces of, of straight talking from Jesus in these verses. Uh, straight talking about his attitude to sin and straight talking about the horrors of the cross horrors he was willing to go through for our sakes uh, next though comes some straight talking about uh, one of the costs of following Jesus uh, one of the, the byproducts if you like of, of peace with God and that byproduct is division right down to division he says uh, within families Uh, verse 49 was, was pretty shocking. Uh, but I think verse 51, in its own way, is, is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Again, if you read it on its own. 
Uh, Jesus tells his hearers, uh, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Now, if, you, if Jesus had waited at this point for those around him to answer the question, his disciples, or if, if we, he was to ask the question of us, uh, how do you think they would have answered? How would you have answered? Do you think that I have come uh, to give peace on earth? Uh, I think they would have probably answered, Yeah, of course, man. That's what you came for, peace on earth. That's what it's all about. Except Jesus doesn't say that. He says the exact opposite. He upsets the apple cart, doesn't he? He says, no. No. Well, what does he mean? What does he mean? Uh, does he mean that God will never, through himself, that's through Jesus Christ, recreate a world in which there is no more pain? There is no more suffering. There is no more war. There is no more division. Is that what he means? Well, no, that's not what he means. It can't be what he means. Because God's word clearly teaches elsewhere that after Christ has returned to judge the earth, to judge the living and the dead, there will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth uh, within which dwells righteousness and there will be peace and there will be unity all around. So what is Jesus telling us here then? Well, he's teaching us and being honest with us about the fact that until he returns, the gospel, that's the good news about salvation in him, the forgiveness made possible by the cross, it will divide people. It will divide people. How so? Well, some will accept the forgiveness that he offers, won't they? Some will follow him as Lord. Some will hear his cry and go to him, his call and go to him. But others will reject him and all that he offers. Everyone, you see, has to make a choice about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a choice that divides. It's not all roads lead to God. Only Jesus does. And we are either for Jesus or against him. And in that sense, you end up with a division line right down the middle of humanity, don't you? And Jesus says sometimes that very line ends up being drawn right down the middle of families. Jesus is honest enough. Uh, Jesus is straight talking enough to tell us that and I'm glad he is he doesn't wish to pull the wool over anyone's eyes he's honest enough to say the gospel will actually in one sense bring division to those who hear it it will unite them to Christ and to one another but it will bring division because some will reject it I should think many of us in this room perhaps even most of us uh, do know the pain that Jesus speaks of here. The pain of having this dividing line running down the middle of your family. Uh, if you're the first, for example, in your family to come to faith in Christ, then yes, it, it can often disrupt and place great strain upon relationships within the family, can't it? It can. And Jesus is honest enough to tell us here. Uh, by the grace of God, of course, those relationships can be restored. 
But it's not always easy, and sometimes it's downright painful. Sometimes the division can come in other ways, when we start sharing the gospel with unbelieving family. Again, I was, I was watching an interview with a man called Sinclair Ferguson. Some of you will have heard him. He's a, a Scottish uh, minister. And he spoke about when he was converted uh, as a teenager uh, in Scotland. Uh, and after he told people in the church he was in that he'd been converted, he was told by someone to, to go home and tell his parents who weren't converted that now he was a Christian and he was to witness to them and to, to present the gospel to them. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said that actually brought a lot of pain <laughs> into the family when that happened. By God's grace it healed over time. He actually said, I wish they'd said to me, now go home and love them. <laughs> go home and love them. That's not to say there wouldn't still have been division. It's good advice. Other times the division can come when a, a Christian in a family changes their behaviour. They perhaps stop doing something that they know to be wrong, but they did with their family before. Or they start doing something they know to be right. For example, just going to church on a Sunday, every Sunday. They start living and speaking in a different way in order to please God. And other members of the family can get unhappy with that. They can interpret it as, as being a bit judgmental upon their behaviour. It's not seeking to be that at all, of course, but that's the way they may understand it. Perhaps often the real issue is their conscience is being challenged and they don't like it. But this is what can happen and Jesus is honest. Thankfully most of the time there's less hostility than that. It's not necessarily that there's great hostility. But there is always the anguish, isn't there? And again you'll know this if you're a Christian and you have unbelieving family. There's the anguish of knowing that members of your family aren't saved. They haven't made a personal faith commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, however much we're grieved by this, and we should be grieved by it, of course, and we should pray for them desperately. But however much we're grieved by it, we shouldn't be surprised by it. And say to God, well, you never told me this might happen. Jesus said it would happen. It does happen. We should go on praying for those family members. We should go on loving them. In God's grace, it may well be that he saves them at some point in the future and unites them to Christ and to us in faith. But we should never be surprised that some of our family members won't turn to Christ. Uh, Christ himself has said that will happen. He's been honest enough to tell us, but he will also give us the grace to cope. He's promised that too. He won't desert you, and he will see you through, as hard a burden as it undoubtedly is to bear. So there then are three, three pieces of straight talking from Jesus. Straight talking about sin and how he wants to judge it. Straight talking about what he did on the cross as he stepped under the judgment himself. Straight talking about the division that the gospel can actually bring. But then Jesus ends this chapter by encouraging his hearers, by encouraging you to respond to what he has just said. Uh, in listening to Jesus straight talking here, we need to respond in the right way. Uh, Jesus begins talking about our response in verse 54. And he does it by using an illustration. I think if you wanted an illustration for British people at this time of year, here's a good illustration. It's the weather. <laughs> Perfect illustration for us. It's about weather forecasts. 
Uh, I've taken a keen interest in weather forecasts recently. I've been on holiday. <laughs> they haven't been good. Never mind. Obviously, the people of Jesus' day uh, like to keep an eye on the weather too. Uh, they were curious about what weather was coming. They'd learned to understand what weather was coming. Uh, they didn't have satellite imagery. They didn't have computer models and model weather systems and tell them when it was going to be rain, when it was going to be sunny. They just had to rely on what they could see around them as they looked up at the sky and, and, and the earth around them. They had to read the signals that they could see. Uh, one signal that Jesus tells us they could read was the appearance of clouds in the western sky. Uh, this is something I got used to doing living on the west coast of this country for quite a long time. You see a few clouds appear in the western sky, you know that rain isn't far away. And it comes in from the west. It was the same in Palestine, where these people lived. The Mediterranean Sea was off to the west, that's where the clouds formed from the water there. It came inland, it deposited the water, the rain. But they could read something else as well. If you've got a wind blowing from the south, this isn't so true in this country most of the time, but in Palestine it was. If you had a wind from the south, where was it coming from? It was coming from the Arabian Peninsula, which was seriously hot. So that meant hot weather was on the way. It was going to be scorching heat. Uh, people in Jesus' day then, much like our day, could interpret weather patterns. Or as Jesus calls it, the appearance of earth and sky in verse 56. But why is he talking about weather patterns though? Uh, what's that got to do with anything? What's his point? Well, his point to them is this. You, you invest quite a bit of time, don't you, in understanding the weather. Well, I'll well say that to most of us, I'm sure. You may spend time investing in what the weather will do, but you don't spend time seeking to understand me and what I will do. You don't understand, as he puts it, the present time. All this time spent on predicting the weather and seeing what the weather's going to do, but you're not looking at what I'm going to do. You're not listening to that. We can be guilty of it too, can't we? We can spend huge amounts of time seeking to understand the weather. When's the next weather forecast? I've got to get the weather on, I've got to see what it's going to do. But we don't even give a thought to Jesus. What he has done. What he's going to do. We work out how to respond to the weather. Okay, it's a short stay today, or I've got to put my waterproofs on, or whatever it is. We don't bother to work out how to respond to Jesus. We want to know how to avoid a soaking, but seemingly aren't bothered about eternal fire in hell. Does that make any sense? Jesus is saying? Really? Jesus then finishes, and, and will finish as well, with a last illustration about responding to him. He says in verse 57, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? You can judge the weather, he says. Why don't you make a right judgment about me? About what you need to do with me? And he tells the people there and he tells us that we have an accuser who is taking us to the magistrate. If we end up in front of the judge, he'll inevitably find us guilty and we'll end up thrown in prison. Prison from which we won't be released until we've paid the full penalty, full justice dispensed. So Jesus asks them the question. He says, given that that's going to happen to everyone, even that's going to happen. If you could settle with your accuser, the one who's taking you to the magistrate here, if you could settle with him, and his accusations are true, remember, if you could settle on the way, wouldn't you do it? Wouldn't you settle with him before you get to that courthouse and you end up thrown into prison? 
wouldn't you avoid the prison sentence by settling out of court? If the terms of the settlement that your, offer, that your accuser sorry, is offering you are good, good terms of settlement, you would accept them, wouldn't you? It's just common sense. You would accept the terms. Often you find people settle out of court, don't they? They say, well, I won't take you to court if you'll give me a certain payment. I don't know, £5,000. And I won't take you to court. You won't go through the whole proceedings. You won't end up in prison. Settle out of court. There's some payment there. But it's less than what the ultimate payment would be. Let's think about what Jesus offers. Because Jesus is the accuser in this illustration. Prison is hell. And hell lasts forever. Here are Jesus' settlement terms. How much is he going to demand of you to avoid going to court and to hell? Here are the terms that if you accept them will keep you out of hell. And actually gain you entrance into the glory of heaven. Here's the terms. Confess your sin. Ask my forgiveness. Trust in me. That's it. There isn't a payment for you there. Confess your sin. Ask my forgiveness. Trust in me to pay the price for your sin. I'll serve the sentence. Now, if somebody offered you that in a real court case, you'd you'd, come again? (laughs) No, (laughs) really? (laughs) Jesus effectively says, confess your sin to me, ask me to forgive you, I'll do it. I'll pay the price. Just say sorry and ask me to help you change, and I will. I'll forgive you, I'll help you change. That's some offer, isn't it? That's some settlement offer. Surely it makes sense, Jesus says, to take it. You couldn't ask for a better settlement than that. You really couldn't. It's gracious, it's free. Ask me and I'll forgive you. I'll drop the charges, I'll pay them myself. That's the gospel then. Have you understood it? Have you responded to it? Settle with Jesus now then. Before it's too late. You end up in the courthouse before the judge. Settle now. And he'll pay the charges for you there on the cross. Amen.